0: Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. You're home for edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me. We talk about faith and politics and all kinds of topics that really matter in our culture. So if you're tired of all the screamers out there taking all the oxygen out of the room and you want to join us and taking some of that space back, you'll love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I am your host and so grateful to have a place to talk about faith and politics and big ideas in our culture with all kinds of interesting accomplished folks of goodwill in good faith. We'd love it if you could support this program by becoming a patron at politicsandreligion.us or on Patreon at patreon.com slash politicsandreligion. And of course, we always appreciate when you subscribe, rate, review, and tell a friend about talk of politics and religion without killing each other. What I also appreciate is the pleasure and privilege of getting to speak to someone whose work and contributions I have admired and respected so much Susan Del Percio. Susan Del Percio is a highly accomplished political strategist and crisis communications consultant who is also a political analyst for MSNBC. Appointed as a special advisor to Governor Andrew Cuomo in 2014, she initiated and implemented communication strategies and advised and developed policy initiatives. Susan also served as deputy commissioner in the Giuliani administration Prior to founding her firm in 2001, which serves private corporate clients, leading elected officials, political organizations, and candidates, as well as nonprofits. Susan is also a distinguished lecturer at Emerson College, where she received both her bachelor and master's degrees. Susan Del Percio, so glad to be with you today. How are you doing?
1: Wonderful to be with you, Corey. Thanks so much for inviting me on your show. I love the whole concept of civility. It's we crazy, really right? need a <laughs> lot more of it.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. A little bit, uh, a little bit of civility could go a long way. So, you went to undergrad and graduate school at Emerson. Did you grow up in Boston or or the Northeast?
1: Uh, no, I grew up in New York. I'm actually born and bred New Yorker went and did my undergrad and grad like you said at Emerson. I did it a little quick because I was doing a lot of great internships. So I finished both in 4 years and like I always say not because I was smart, it was just that Emerson had so much to offer during the summers that I just kept doing you know working and doing internships throughout my whole time there. So it was it was a fantastic experience. It also got me into my first political experience in, in 1988, boy, that was a long time ago, huh, Corey? <laughs> um, <laughs> wow. But 1988, in, it, Emerson College had a program that allowed you to go to California, work on the primary of your choice. California's primaries are in June, so there really wasn't much to do that summer, except I ended up working for the California Republican Party and then quickly followed that up in 1990 on Pete Wilson's uh, first gubernatorial campaign.
0: Okay, so I have questions about those those early campaigns and even a little bit about Emerson, but I, I wanted to ask you something else. I've heard you speak with such reverence about your parents. So I was wondering <laughs> if you could tell us a bit about them and maybe one or two ways they each influenced you.
1: Well, my parents, it's. It, it, you even caught me off guard there, boy. They, um, tremendously influential in my life. So supportive. Uh, my father passed away a few years ago, but he led a heck of a life. He served in the Merchant Marines in World War II. He was first generation born in this country, grew up in Corona Queens, which was a very, uh, working class would be kind to call it. It was basically a poor, you know, Italian neighborhood and he he's led an incredible journey he was a widower then he met my mom and they got married and i have to say their love and support got me through so much i know your show touches on religion i did not necessarily grow up with much religion my father was came from a catholic family which he really didn't practice after high school or so. My mom is Jewish. She was not a practice, very practicing. But what we grew up with was family. So we practiced both religions in the sense of celebrating holidays. And when kids used to ask me like, so what is your like religion? You do all these holidays. I'm like, well, all our holidays are basically the same thing with just different food. (laughs) so that's how that's how I kind of described it there was lots of good food and it just varied depending on what holiday we were celebrating so we were brought up I was brought up my sister and I, with a lot of education on religion um not necessarily a deep faith but a deep respect of faith so I would say that you know they definitely both Allowed for clear, independent thinking. Uh, they both kind of wondered how I, you know, they thought they raised a nice little girl from Long Island, New York, and wanted to know how she got in politics. But turned out, it, it all worked out okay.
0: <laughs> yeah, you're reminding me. I was talking to somebody about this yesterday. I so my family's all from Brooklyn, but I, they were in Staten Island, working Glass neighborhood in Staten Island by the time I was born. So my mother had to go to work right away and. Uh, they sent me next door to the Minunis. I grew up in a Jewish family and uh, the Minunis are Italians. So we grew up with a little bit of both too. And uh, it's interesting how much similarity there is between mm-hmm. Italians and Jews. You know, I, the joke I was making to my friend yesterday was that the Jews infe- invented guilt, but the, the Italians really perfected it. <laughs> <laughs> but to uh, this, this day, every every Christmas Eve, I think of Ida, Ida Manuni's meatballs. Oh, man, I, I could still smell them. <laughs> so I was also curious about your time at Emerson. Did you go in knowing that you wanted to study something generally in communications or politics, or did you kind of discover that during your time there?
1: I kind of discovered it. A lot of that credit goes to my mom for finding a school that was actually just perfect for me. And it was perfect in that I was from New York city and yet went to boarding school in Western mass. So I want, I needed the city like stimulus of a city, but I also needed small classes in a small school. And Emerson kind of fit that bill. She always saw me moving towards communications. I thought I would end up maybe in public relations, but when I kind of inquired about it, they said, no, it's advertising and public relations. And I said, why, those are two completely different things. And they were like, well, that's the deal. And you could just become a communication studies major. And I said, great. And I was just taking an elective course in politics, political science, like a 101 course. And that's when the professor said, oh, you need to meet the head of the division who has a new program out in California and go take a try at it. So I called home and I was like, mom, I want to work in California this summer. She goes, "Okay," And I was taking some classes, but it wasn't. It probably was a couple of years later where I realized that I did kind of belong in that field. There was a class called called Kent State. It was taught by Dr. Gregory Payne, who is one of like the Kent State gurus of all time. And it really actually taught me a lot about the lack of communication and the importance of communication around very turbulent times. So it sort of stayed with me, although I didn't know if I was actually gonna end up being involved in political communication, but I was drawn to it, and I was very lucky to have the exposure to it that I did.
0: Sorry, you caught me mid-sip.
1: Sorry. <laughs> I'm
0: trying to get my, uh, I'm still in the morning, so I'm I, I still, I'm still uh, drinking coffee. Um, good for you. <laughs> so, okay, so your first campaign was, was the 88 George H.W. Bush campaign, right, in California. Yeah. So, first of all, so you, you got that job through an internship, is that?
1: hmm yeah, it was part of a program, and it was it considered an internship, although we did have classes as well okay, that we had to do. Right, right, but right. It was, And it was an interesting time because it was during that summer, and then imagine going back to Boston in 1988, where Mike Dukakis was the candidate, being a Bush supporter.
0: Yeah, so that's what I was curious. Did you grow up in a family that was kind of right-leaning, Reagan-Republican? Or uh, did you develop more conservative views in school On or uh, once you got on campaigns and started developing relationships with people?
1: Um, my household was not like the way I grew up was not political in any sense. My parents were not involved in politics, although we were very much aware of current events. That was something we had to be up on. You know, reading the newspaper when you actually had to read it. If people don't know this, it used to come to your door, you open it up and get your hands dirty. Um, It wasn't on your computer back then. Yeah. And when we got to watch the news, there was only three channels that you could watch the news on.
0: And and, and sometimes you had to get up and and actually change the channel, you know, like the... Yeah.
1: Well, actually, I, I had a very significant role in my family.
0: Were you the remote control?
1: I was the remote control. That's so awesome. And there'd be sometimes I'd be doing my homework and I'd hear Susie, which only my family calls me, and I come running down and, you know, change the channel. <laughs> okay.
0: Yeah, that's hilarious. <laughs> so I was
1: the remote, yes, for, uh, okay. for many years. <laughs> so
0: I have a very serious question now because I'm now picturing your whole family dynamic, and uh, this may be the end of our conversation. But were you a Mets household or a Yankees household?
1: Well, my parents weren't that into sports. I be was initially a Mets fan.
0: Okay, all right, yeah, because you were like a teenager during '86.
1: Yeah, and my mom loved any sport. As like as it got towards the you know the finals of it, like the division finals and the playoff games, as long as there was a New York team playing, she was interested. And I remember during the Mets game. Uh, World Series. She came into my room. She's like, "Are you watching? Are you watching?" And I'm like, "Yeah." I didn't even know you like baseball. She's That's like, great. "No, but it's New York." And I said, "Okay." So we grew up more of a love of New York than sports. Um, I would say I became a Yankees fan probably sometime in college. Oh. Maybe it was a maybe it was a Red Sox thing that I just kind of went back deep and said nah, But I was. Oh. Yeah, I was Yankees, I was Giants, not Jets.
0: Okay. Yeah, um, I'm a, my brother's a Jets fan, I'm a Giants fan, so And I was okay.
1: Rangers, not Islanders, even though I grew up on the island.
0: Are you watching the playoffs now? Are you still
1: uh, Yeah, a little bit, yeah.
0: My brother and I, my brother's out here now, so uh in California, so we get to it's our thing we get together and the Rangers are having such a great run right now, but the Yankees thing. All right. Nobody's perfect.
1: My problem with hockey is I don't believe you should be watching hockey in June. Yeah. There's
0: something about that. That guy's skating around on the ice. We should
1: should really be able to kind of do better on the season.
0: Yeah. 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 I could see that. It is such a long season. And, but you know, the fact that they're still playing is a good sign, you know, that they've gone this far. But uh, I'm going to have to, you know, give you some grace <laughs> on the whole Yankees thing. So, but oh, I, I'll, I'll yeah. get over it.
1: Um, a <laughs> little team but, that could.
0: <laughs> but the, from Mets to Yankees is somewhat analogous from going from, you know, longtime Republican strategist to like your life over the last five, 10 years, right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, i could argue that, sure.
0: <laughs> anyway. Um, <laughs> Sorry, we'll get that. There was we'll a little that, more though.
1: thought behind it. Yeah. I would say it's career wise, you know, 30 some odd years into my career to have it appended the way it was, was, was really difficult, frankly, and not so much when I worked in government for Andrew Cuomo, because I'd like to highlight, I've never worked politically for a Democrat. Um, I haven't worked for a Republican in a long time, given my views on the, of the party right now, but. I believe in good government. Like I, when I worked in the Giuliani administration and to your listeners, I would like to highlight there was a time where Rudy Giuliani was not crazy.
0: No, I mean, he was America's mayor. He was, yeah.
1: He was nothing to, as to what we see of him today. And it's very disheartening to so many of us who worked in that administration. I went in in 94, 95 and spent six years there and was very proud of the work I did. And again, it wasn't all the big stuff. It was, it was doing good things for people. It was getting, keeping government small when you had to, you know, we were always under pressure to reduce costs. It was putting in good policies. Um, I know we'll get into the taxi and limousine commission in a little bit, but, which is just crazy. I mean, that, (laughs) that in itself is bonkers, but, there were actually good policies that we, we required there that changed lives for people because of the safety concerns that we had and, and implemented.
0: Yeah, no, so to your point, my parents were, We by this time my parents, uh, we, we lived on the Jersey side, but my parents worked in the inner city, and uh, they, they were both educators, my dad a guidance counselor, my mother a uh, kindergarten teacher in New York City, and they were big supporters of Mayor Koch and then Dinkins who were both Democrats, But then when Giuliani came in, even as a Republican, they saw the significant improvements to things that affected their daily lives and -hmm. their students' daily lives. So they yeah, to to your point, I think uh, Giuliani as mayor of New York and then especially fast forward to 9-11 and his leadership during, you know, during that time, uh, it was it was remarkable. It's a very different it. So what what is that like for you to see? It's like a Shakespearean demise of a character. What's it like for you, having worked in his administration?
1: When I, if I look back and think about it in its in its totality, it's just very sad. It makes me sad that the person who had so much to offer in New York and the country at a time when we needed it during nine eleven and after, and I can't tell you how many families he touched. You know, in the wake of nine eleven, he went to the funerals, not just of. The big ones you saw on TV, but if there was something going on, he went. The, the senior members of his administration, we all went to funerals because it was our way of paying respect to those heroes. So there's a there's certainly sadness there. There's also anger. There's also anger, frankly. Um, when I see him, or he's not in the news as much right now, but back, a, if you know, starting with Trump, I'm angry that he. Needed to be felt that he needed to be relevant, and put that as a priority over a priority of, of serving the public, which is really what he did. Yeah. He was a public servant, and he threw that all away, and didn't care. Mostly because I, my beliefs, and I, haven't, you know, no one's. He didn't say this to me, so I can't say it's fact. But really, just to stay relevant in the world of Donald Trump and and that gets me angry too because it takes away from from the good in the history that he had done
0: so that's what you attribute the transition to this this devolution uh, that he felt the need to be relevant specifically in a Trump orbit and that if that's i guess if that's your compass if that's your north star then you're willing to you can be willing to give up all of the principles that you fought for for the, the entirety of the rest of your life.
1: Yeah. And that's why you get sad and then you get angry.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So you just reminded me that so you started your own firm. I'm skipping ahead a little bit here and, and we can kind of jump back and forth, but sure. you just reminded me that you started your own firm in 2001, right?
1: Yes. <laughs> Back then it was, I was a political appointee. There was very little chance that I would still have my job. Um, It looked like a guy named Alan Hevesy who later went to jail actually would become the next mayor. This was all pre 9-11. I left in March of 2001 and I, I was leaving from the taxi and limousine commission. I was where I served as a deputy commissioner and it just seemed as normal as can be. There was a lot of opportunity. I actually worked with someone or started the firm with someone who I worked with 10 years, almost 10 years prior uh, for a local elected official. Okay. And so we kind of joined up. We started the firm, which was great. And um, we did a lot of political work. We had a lot of taxi clients and I ended up buying him out in 2008. Okay still had my own firm, just to kind of finish out the timeline here. Then it's I was doing my own thing um, and was a contributor for MSNBC starting in 2011. And I was called to, to speak to someone from Andrew Cuomo's office. I did it as a courtesy. They wanted me to work for him politically. I said, no. And they said, well, why don't you come into government? And I was like, Are you kidding me? (laughs) Um, It was not something I had even thought about. Although back then, Andrew Cuomo was working a lot with Republicans. There was a Republicans led uh, state Senate and he was working with them, actually believe it on reducing taxes was one of their priorities. And they were getting things done and working with the democratic state assembly and there was—they moved things in the right direction. It was actually great to see both parties working together to help New York. And it turns out you can say no up to three times to a governor, and then you must say yes. <laughs> and that's <laughs> what I did.
0: thats uh, sounds like Hillary's uh, Hillary's track record with Obama. She said no to the Secretary of State thing several times before she finally said yes.
1: But I and and I went back again, because I believed in government. It was based on my experience in, during the Giuliani years that if you see people doing good things, you should you should participate. And I felt that was really important to be a participant in, in what I saw then as good policy and good governance.
0: Yeah, so I do wanna go back to 2001 because that was such a critical hinge uh, in your life and in your career. Uh, but can you keep on bringing up questions <laughs> for me? So when you took that job, having been in Republican politics, did you get any like all kinds of pushback from? So what was that like?
1: It was hard. Um, My friends understood. I think if they would have said I was working for Cuomo's campaign, it would have been a lot different. But people who knew me and knew me well knew this is something that made sense for me in a weird way. A lot of people said, oh, he's just taking you off the field for, there was an election in 2014 and there was going to be a competitive Republican in that race. And they said, oh, he's just taking you off the playing field so you don't want to campaign against him. And I said, I can't think that way. I think they were right in retrospect, um, but my, I never regretted making the decision to serve in government. And I think everyone should especially if they work in politics. Politics has now become a gig. When I started, you got involved in politics because you wanted to see your policies implemented. You believed in the policy. Yes, the person who was doing it was equally as important, but now it seems all like a gig. It seems like it's just a way of another way of making a living and you know, back then in 2014, it was really hard to make that decision to and, and have my Republican friends a little upset with me but I had no problem doing it yeah. because it made sense. it wasn't a political decision
0: it was based it sounds like it was based on principles you felt like there yeah. were certain things that were being done that you believed in uh, whether it's bipartisanship the bipartisanship in general or specific policies that you had mentioned so you could stand on principle and make that case with friends uh, from the industry.
1: And you know what, I, I hope I'm allowed, you can't complain, I'm modifying my word choices here. No, no, you no, can't don't complain. All right, you can't bitch about the process if yeah. you're not willing to fix the process within. So when given, when given the opportunity, not everyone's given the opportunity like I was, but I was given the opportunity. So what am I gonna do, attack it from outside or try and make it better? Yeah. I thought it was more important to make it better. And by having a Republican there in in that administration at a senior level, it it showed that there was room for dialogue. And isn't that what we're trying to do? I mean, you have a whole show devoted to it.
0: Yeah, we're trying.
1: Speaking and having a conversation and sharing ideas for hopefully a better good.
0: Did you find that the Democrats that you were working with held you? scant, like were they suspicious? Oh, they hated so? me.
1: There were okay. so many people there that hated. Most people hated me.
0: <laughs> so it's like, no doubt. If you're getting crap from you know your Republican friends and the, the Democrats that you're working with all in the same day, you've done something right.
1: <laughs> well, I was used to that because I also was a Republican on MSNBC back then. So before then, so you know, Democrats hated me because I was a Republican. Republicans hated me because I said the truth. So. I'm not, I'm, I, I'm okay, as long as I'm not, I feel that I'm comfortable in my own beliefs and what I am saying, I'm okay with that. But let me you know, say this one point, it took me a long time to get comfortable with having my own views and speaking mm. them out loud. I always had my own views, but I always had clients I was speaking on behalf. I was always someone else's mouthpiece. Okay. So when I started on television, it was really interesting to speak just for myself. Like, what do you think? I wasn't saying, what, what does my client think? It was, what does Susan Del Percio think? So coming into that voice was a challenge and it was great and I loved it. And I've been pursuing that ever since.
0: Those are always the most compelling voices to me. You know, whether it's in uh, like at Washington Post, someone like Kathleen Parker or at the New York Times, uh, David Brooks, historically, or or just on on uh, the news programs, if you get like a Danny Pletka on a panel at, at NBC folks who are able to make a persuasive case when they're in general minority. Uh, Those, those are always the most compelling voices to me. I think maybe that's, maybe that's why intuitively I was, I've been drawn to your work and and the substance of your work. So the, I do want to go back to 2001 though, because from a professional standpoint, you were, you were an employee, you were, you know, time for dollars kind of a thing. And then all of a sudden you took this risk of becoming an enterprising entrepreneur and it was 2001, like, you know, (laughs) so barely six months into it, (laughs) you know.
1: Oh, by the way, that's also when the bubble bursts on the dot-com industry. It was exactly the wrong time to start a
0: business. <laughs> I, so I was starting a business too. I was starting my headhunting practice, which we still have. Uh, so that's why I have so many questions about your your practice. It, we started it that uh, that year, and we were already in the midst of out here. I was serving, ser- uh, working with um, studios and mini majors and networks and agency like creative agencies that were serving the studios. Um, and we had already seen two big whammies. One was to your point, the dot, we called it the dot bomb, you know, everything, oh, yeah. all the volume that we saw in the late nineties and the first part of 2000, 2001 was, you know, going over the cliff. But the other thing, um, there was a, a union, strike, so I forget if it was SAG or WGA, but there was a union strike that really significantly affected.
1: Oh, I remember I think it was that. SAG.
0: In fact, I know it was SAG because there was this terrible, I had to um, do some cleanup work. This director who was working with uh, Tony and Ridley Scott and a guy named Marcus Nespel. He did this like, and he would never be able to get away with it today. He did this like incredibly offensive ad to poke a SAG in the eye. The point of his ad got lost because the point of his ad was like, hey, I'm going to South Africa. I'm going to Vancouver. I'm going into New Zealand. And by the way, my commercial editorial prices are like a fifth of what they are here in LA. Um so a lot of the business a, a lot of n- not just the regular production work but all of the post production and pre production and everything like the, the whole industry around it really started to dry up. And then you get you get 911 and we we're like we just we had no idea what was to come. Anyway, that was a much longer story than I planned.
1: Yeah, but by the way, just to follow up on that, don't and at that time even before two thousand one, you had a lot of states like New York who was offering credits for film and television to come to its state. It started to become more competitive while states were looking for that business.
0: Yeah, yeah, and to this day, you still see a lot of production in Georgia. You see, you see yeah. production in Louisiana. You see production, but a lot of that other work ended up going to the other side of, of uh, you know, to Canada or. Mm-hmm you know, uh, to countries in the other hemisphere, and they never came back. So yeah, but 9-11 was really the one that completely hit the reset button. And it took years to, to. we just started hitting our stride in about 2008. <laughs> so, so how did that affect you? What What was it like at that time for you just starting your business um, when Dot Bomb was happening in 9-11? How did that affect you?
1: Well, my business partner had a lot of faith in me when we started this company. As I said, he's someone I knew about ten for 10 years. And I really didn't know the PR business at all. I understood government and I understood politics. And he's like, I know you'll be able to drum up some business and you will learn the business as quickly as anybody I know, trust me. And I did because for 10 years he had been doing the PR business. So I joined in. We did ironically get quite a few taxi clients, taxi industry clients, you'd be surprised how much industry there is around taxis. But it was at the time, like people who wanted to pay with credit card or there was something called taxi TV, which is in the back of cabs now, it's very common. But we were were moving along. We also loved politics. So we always had local races and then, and statewide when appropriate and It was on 9-11, we had a candidate running in a Republican primary in Staten Island. And I remember going into the office, I remember leaving, turning off my TV, hearing that there was some kind of plane in the, at at the World Trade Center. I thought it was a small, you know, like a a prop plane, something small, I didn't, it didn't register. By the time I get to the office, my, business partner, Bill called me and he, I was always kind of on the earlier side. He was on the later side and he was like, get out of there. I was like, what are you talking about? Because my office was right on top of Grand central station. Okay. So he's like, get out, look out the window which I did. And because we looked straight South and we were on the 40 some odd floor and we looked South from 42nd street. I was like, Oh my God. And he's like, get out of there now. You're at Grand Central. It could be a target. The Pentagon was hit. I was like, okay. And just, and then I I, th- I remember that so well. I can't tell you what happened the next 48 hours other than I was just processing information.
0: When you first saw it, had it just been the first plane or had both yes, planes hit? Yes, it
1: had just been the first plane. The
0: first plane, yeah. So I, I got called that morning. Obviously, we're a little bit later. I got called... Pretty early in the morning. I still have a lot of family there. My Aunt Rhoda was working at uh, um, 890 Broadway, which is uh, between 18th and 19th, I think. And uh, somebody said, you're not going to believe this, but a plane. We had a meeting that morning. So he was telling me that we can't meet even out here. And he said, yeah, a plane crashed into the World Trade Center and we don't know what's happening. So this is wh- where my head went. I don't know if you remember this, but it had to have been like the late 70s. I miss in the morning was on WNBC, remember? Yeah. And he had this running joke at one time. Uh, my, my next my neighbor, who I'm still best friends with this guy, um, his his mom would drive us to the, bu- the bus stop. And I miss had this running joke about a worm that was a giant worm and it was eating everything in sight. And the giant worm climbed to the top of the World Trade Center. And I must have been in first or second grade. And I just I was telling my mother, I was telling everybody, like, this is crazy. There's a giant worm that crawled to the top of the. And they explained to me, this is Don Imus. He's making a joke and it's a running thing. And uh so when when my friend told me, I, I thought to his name is O D, OD Welch. Um, I, I said, OD, like this isn't a thing. Like, that's that's not real. This couldn't possibly, because it was as unfathomable to me that something like this could be happening, what he was telling me, as like, you know driving down to the shore in the Atlantic ocean, not being there. You know what I mean? Like.
1: I do. I also, you know, it's interesting. Maybe again, it's a New York thing, but I was also involved in a special election right around the within days of the 1995 bombing of the world trade center. Oh
0: yeah. The van that, that, uh, exploded. yeah.
1: And it was actually, it was a special election and we were counting Ballots off the. We were surveying the. It was a. It was this. It was a special election in 1995, and I remember being downtown, and we were canvassing, the machines, oh, to match up because back then, people read off the numbers to the AP, which is a newswire, and there were always mistakes, small mistakes, but in a tight election, you want to make sure at least what the machines say everyone lines up and agrees on before you get into counting ballots, but. It was so a lot of New Yorkers were for had that first shock of remembering 1995. Yeah, it was it was clear and, and also I had been working in government at the time, so it or just about to work in government at the time I should say, and it just shook us all to the to the core. And then 9/11. The weirdest thing about 9-11 is if you were in New York, you could not reach anybody by phone.
0: Yeah, we couldn't reach Aunt Rhoda.
1: And there was, for, I cannot explain why, I could get anyone on the phone. Oh. I had no problem. How is that? I don't know. My cell phone was the only cell phone that was working apparently in New York City. And I remember putting people like, my friend was like, find my nanny and my daughter.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And another friend of mine was like, make sure my husband's not running towards the building because that's the kind of man he was. And I, I was able to speak to my parents and my sister and brother in law. My sister was pregnant at the time. So I about seven months pregnant and they were trying to figure out what to do. It was it, it was a very difficult to say the very least. But problem for everybody, everyone had their own personal trauma and drama that was going on at the same time. So it it was very unsettling. I don't think I slept for three days just because I was by myself watching the news.
0: Were you living in the city too at that time?
1: I was, and it was, I remember the days after and mayor was saying, you know, go out, go to a restaurant. A friend of mine was, you're not supposed to have a funny 9-11 story, but I actually have a funny 9-11 story. (laughs) Okay. So a friend of mine, so 9 11 happened on a Tuesday. A friend of mine is at a restaurant. They're having sushi on a Thursday. And they're like, okay, we're doing the right thing. We're going out. They're like, yeah, and this meal is great. You know, and then they're like, wait a minute. The ports have been closed since Tuesday. How oh. old is this fish? <laughs>
0: <laughs> fish? Well, you know, you're doing your Again, part. Again, you're, you're
1: not allowed to have a funny 9-11 story, but it was, it was those types of things and those types of stories that got us through it because yeah. you had to find a way to laugh. Yeah. About a month later, there was the big event at Yankee Stadium. Right. Yeah. And... My business partner said to me right after 9-11, he's like, are you about to leave this business right now and go back into the administration? And I said, no, but I got something to do. I don't know what it is. And I couldn't do anything. I wasn't a government employee, but I could support my friends. So there would be, I would go and deliver dry cleaning or help pick up whatever needed to be picked. Someone's kid needed to pick up, someone's dog needed to be walked because all my friends were working and trying to get the city back. So I did that, but then I also volunteered for that event at Yankee Stadium. And people, some people were assigned to other people. I was assigned Bette Miller. And all I can say was she was absolutely phenomenal mm. and gracious and boy, she does she love does this, she New York. But anyway, those, those were times that you just didn't, I don't know, I had a business, I suppose, I could care less about it. This was my city
0: yeah you know it was that time when i realized there were differences there's something different about new york it made me miss new york so much because there is something about it like everybody gives us a hard time for being really you know having some sharp elbows because you kind of have to you're on the subway with everybody all the time you're up against them you know whatever like on the street walking on the sidewalk but i what i came to the epiphany that i had was that everybody in new york who grew up in new york You got to be thick skinned. But at the end of the day, we're all soft hearted because we do have to learn how to we do have to know how to live with each other. You know,
1: a friend of mine said on 9-11, he was an Israeli and it was something they were saying in Israel. He goes, all New Yorkers became Sabras, which is what people who are born in Israel called themselves Sabras. And what it means, it's a prickly pear that on the outside, they're kind of hard and prickly. But once you open it up, it's also nice and fluffy or soft and mushy and, yeah. and yeah. sweet.
0: Yeah, that's right.
1: So that's... that was when all New Yorkers became sabras.
0: OK, <laughs> you make me miss New York that much more. <laughs> so I did want to ask you about your time working with Governor Cuomo. It was about a year, right? Yes, and then obviously, I mean, you're talking about you know, seeing the demise of Mayor Giuliani and having regrets, not regrets, I don't think that's how you would put it, but you know, um, being grieved over it, like gr- grieving it and then being angry about it. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you know, we saw about a year or so ago with uh, with Governor Cuomo. did you, when you were there, did you see signs like looking back now with that pers- with the perspective of what we know now? Did you see signs when you were there of of that kind of environment? What could have been going on?
1: Yeah, I actually wrote a column for um, Mika Brzezinski's Know Your Value platform about this. And I was first uncomfortable talking about a personal experience, but it's important to recognize, I never saw or experienced any sexual harassment whatsoever. That being said, Albany is a toxic place. There is plenty of it happening and probably still happening. Started when I was there 30 years ago, there's always been really horrible stories. Unfortunately, there's not a state capital you haven't heard about a story. And there is something to be said about the male dominated culture, but also the political culture, which it was what I experienced the toxicity of. It wasn't sexist, it wasn't misogynist, it was power. That's what it was, that was who you can control and how you could get people to do things. And it was a demanding environment, it was nothing. I remember even when I went back, I was surprised how much government had calmed down from when I was in it 20 years before. Or 15 years before. It was, it, there's no niceties. There's very little civility. Um, both Giuliani and Cuomo, and I would argue like someone like Chris Christie, if we know, you know his history, they're prosecutors, they're hard hitters, they're hard workers. They push their staffs beyond their, any limits that the staff member may even know. Again, not in a sexual way, but in a, a driven way. You create competitions within, you pit people up against each other. It's not a Democrat or a Republican thing. It's, it's a political slash higher echelon of government thing. So while I never saw or experienced any um, hostility towards women, I can say I saw a lot of hostility. Yeah. I saw a lot of berating of people, not necessarily women, men, women, it didn't matter. You would get cut down and, and tossed aside in, in, in a New York minute, as they say. But it it's not a far reach to see how, and maybe I should say back. So you see something like that happen in a New York minute. And maybe because I was such a senior person and an outsider, I didn't see everything But I do think that it is something that one step follows the next in this when you are about control and power. And that's what sexual harassment is truly about Mm -hmm. control and power. So um, I never saw it, I never experienced it horrible work environment there's a reason why you when you love government like I do and you work there for just under a year there's a reason why you leave yeah it's not because it's great I left I didn't have a job I said I was going back to my business but my business hadn't been active for a year it was literally just dormant
0: yeah now that that was something else I was curious about you know like I mentioned I have this um you know this M&A, small scale MA and headhunting practice, I couldn't imagine like just hitting the pause button at any point along the way for a year uh, or even close, even six months, and then just kind of stepping right back into it. So how did that, how, did you just pick up right where you left off? Did you have to build from scratch? How did that- No,
1: we got built from scratch. When you're out of the game, you're out of the game. And especially, you know, th- that's nothing compared to what I experienced as far as politically with Donald Trump. But at that point, I wasn't a good Republican anymore, like I had been because I worked for Cuomo.
0: Yeah, yeah. So
1: I had lost my niche and like kind of where my base was. I was fortunate that my reputation was always good. I reached out to people. I started getting my business back on my feet, on its feet the way it always had operated by reputation and referral. So once I let people know I was back out there, my business started to improve, but it was it was risky. It's risky to start your own business in the first place. Yeah. You know, sometimes you just have to take shots and I was fortunate that the shots I took weren't just in the dark, they were a little calculated. <laughs> Yeah. Um, they were, you know, my father had a saying, the harder I work, the luckier I get.
0: Oh yeah, sure. Sure.
1: So, by that time I was pretty lucky because i had worked really hard. And it was a challenge and I kind of re- that's when I actually more or less started really defining myself in the crisis field. Okay. I had done it a little bit starting in 2008 when I had transitioned um from my, buying out my business partner and being a sole practitioner. Yeah. But after that, after the Cuomo experience, I really started using more of my crisis background.
0: That's it. Must have been interesting for you to observe uh, Cuomo, uh, Governor Cuomo, going through. Did you were you watching from the sidelines and thinking, man, he's not doing he's not doing this well. If there's a good way to do it, this is this ain't it.
1: Well, that w- I mean, that may have been the reason why he couldn't survive it was the way he handled it. Yeah, I say this, I said it then, I'll say it today. No one does defiance like Andrew Cuomo. And I don't mean it in a good way.
0: Right, right.
1: Because he never, here's the fact, he never said he did anything wrong. Do I believe personally some of the things that were brought up qualify as sexual harassment? I'll be honest with you, I don't. I don't believe that, because you greet someone who does not work for you at a social occasion of an empl- one of your employees are getting married and they used to you know be maybe they worked for you a long time ago or they knew you from some kind of political circle if you greet them and say hello and give a kiss in new york everyone kisses everybody hello i don't find that to be sexual harassment now maybe it was an unwanted hello it could have been but as far as a legitimate charge of him as someone in office, I don't think that broke any oath in office. There were other cases. I don't know how you say it wasn't sexual harassment. Whether or not he believes it was or not, he should have been, it, once it was laid out, he should have apologized for it.
0: Yeah, yeah. And there's a certain responsibility with leadership to be above reproach, uh, to be cognizant of those things, you know. And
1: it's interesting because if you recall, during the Me Too movement, Al Franken's former Senator Al Franken, yeah, was a lot of Democrats were angry about how quickly he was moved and forced out of his position. And I would argue, just from my po- my political and, and and media background, it was because there was a picture. And You know, in the business, you say there's art, meaning there's something you can show a photograph or a clip from a video or something. Yeah. And so maybe he thought, maybe Cuomo thought he could ride it out. But that's the other thing. Once one drops, maybe you survive it. But if usually if there's a problem, three or four drop right after. And that's exactly what happened.
0: Yeah, yeah. Now, there is one other, I, I, I have like current events questions for you. <laughs> We're like 45, 50 minutes into this. We haven't gotten there yet, but I did want to ask you. So you're getting back into private practice right about the time, a little bit before the Trump era yep. or, or had Trump already announced? Did he come on down the escalator yet or?
1: No, it was I left in the end of February, early March Trump took that elevator ride down I think sometime in July.
0: Yeah, June or July of 2015. Yeah. Um, so how's that been? <laughs> I mean, if if you working for Cuomo was hard. I mean, you, like you've been a pretty vocal critic, not just of Trump but like Trumpism, the magnification of the whole party. Like what can you can you describe the actual risks and what it actually cost you to basically stand on principle and say this whole, this Trump character and this, and being in New York or like, you knew who this guy is.
1: Oh yeah. For many decades.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So what, what was that like for you? What did it cost you?
1: So it's interesting. I never thought it cost me anything because in, if I would have looked at it as costing me something, it would have meant me selling myself out. So there's no, I can't, do that in my mind. And I don't fault other people, you know, I I wanna make sure, make this clear. Just because that was my decision, I understand that other people have other concerns with their economics. They may have children in college or whatever. So I I am by no means do I think I am, deserve quote credit for doing what I did. I just did what was good for me. Mm -hmm. And so, I haven't worked on a Republican campaign since 2015. I worked for the Lincoln Project in 2020. I was very proud of the work the Lincoln Project did. I was more on the political side. I headed up the Republicans and independents for Biden. So I was working with like-minded Republicans. Yeah. And there were some, obviously there were enough that Biden was elected, thank goodness, in 2020. You make decisions in your life. Sometimes they seem so major to others, but they just seem like changing your socks to yourself. It was nothing for me to not support Donald Trump. I couldn't do it. I what I can't understand is how the party could sell out. Lock, stuck, and barrel. And they were and they were wooed by Donald Trump, ironically, from very blue states as well. Trump's campaign did something very important that people should realize because it affects where we go in the future as the Republican party goes. Before he was sworn in, he was meeting with state party officials at the senior levels. Every state party chairman or woman was invited to DC. Sometimes they sent a plane. Some of their team was invited. It didn't matter if it was New York, California, or Texas, or Florida. They got those state party chairmen people to front load their organizations with Trump supporters. Okay. They got behind Trump. So remember, I come from the grassroots of, the, of politics. I, I, know, I know what it is to build from the ground up. And so we have seen those types of state leaders for the last five years, because they're still being supported by Donald Trump in some shapes or forms, even if it's just a fundraiser. So I believe that that becomes, the challenge is when Donald Trump and his extremist candidates start losing more, how long do those state party chairman and leadership in those state parties stay in control? I predict probably 2028.
0: Oh, okay.
1: I mean, give I mean, like there's cycles. So it's not going to be 2022. We already see the influence. It's there. I think that, you know, and don't forget state organizations are what put up U.S. senators, members of Congress, elected officials um, to the state houses, as well as, you know, local mayoralities. So- I think you're gonna see the first kind of extremists go out in 2022. 2024, again, it'll be another cycle. Things will happen. 2026, people are gonna get angry. The the the, the real, the, the previous guts of the Republican party, the people who kind of put up their hands, they wanna start winning. Yeah. So I think that will start where the leadership will start changing after enough losses because, they can't put up, because of their relationship with Trump, the state parties can't get behind people who don't believe in the cult of Trump.
0: Right, right. Yeah, It's in, so um, it should be noted, and I do want to give a shout out to Politicology. You oh, and yeah. Mike Madrid and and Ron Steslow had a great conversation. I forget if it was on, by the way, Politicology Plus, totally worth it because um, I think this part of the conversation was on political ecology plus and you just answered Mike and uh, Madrid had this um, theory that the trumpification of the Republican Party would work itself out and that it could be reclaimed maybe not for Reagan Republican like go go back to you know that that era or those types of principles, but something you know you're gonna sweat it out somehow, right?
1: You are, because here's the thing, we are fundamentally a two party country. We are two operating parties in this country, Democrats and Republicans. There are independents and people who identify with, do not, there are people in this country who do not identify with either party, but they still have to really only vote on one or the other. Some parties like, some states like New York do have third parties, but the options are limited. I do believe we could have a third party, but you have to show me someone in a group of people who are committed to doing it for 20 years. That's how long it will take to put together a viable third party. I'm not talking about getting on the ballot in all every state. We've done that through the Alliance party. We've seen that. It's not getting on the ballot, it's having a movement. So for right now, we are a two party system governance matters. One of the things that reasons why Donald Trump lost was because people didn't have faith in his ability to get basics done. That's when I think you're going to see those Republicans come back and say, for the love of God, just give me like a a tax or an infrastructure or some kind of piece of legislation that moves this country forward.
0: Right, right. So, okay, I have so many questions now. One is, I've been hearing more and more talk about getting ballot initiatives on in more states to change election laws so that there are more open primaries, ranked choice voting. Do you think that would make, that would pave the way, make it a little bit easier for a third part, a robust third party to become more viable?
1: It will, but it's, again, it won't, it's a third party will become by its nature a party. It's not an independent party. It's another party that appeals to independence. Right, right. So ranked choice voting and open primaries allow, I think where the best part about that is it allows for a bigger part of the democratic process to play out. You see, I believe if you want to get rid of extreme candidates, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, you need more people voting. Because when you only have 10 to 15% of either party showing up in a primary, you get the most extreme candidate. It's just the nature of the beast. So you want better candidates? You want people who can appeal to more people and not just have one sliver of a a campaign that's devoted either to Donald Trump or guns or abortion or other issues, single issues, you need people who are dedicated to governance. So the more people participate, the better the candidates will be frankly, because they'll have to appeal to more people, which is why there is an argument to be made for ranked choice voting and open primaries as a partisan myself even though i'm a partisan who hates my party right now yeah. <laughs> always a challenge i i don't necessarily i'm not sure i'm a fan of it yet but as i move away from politics and i get more interested in policy initiative you know not initiatives but policy and nonprofit work i see the need to enhance democracy and Again, if we could get more people participating, then we are increasing our democracy at home.
0: Okay, speaking of democracy. So I I live in California, I voted in our primary, or I dropped off my ballot yesterday. And uh, I live in California 27. If you're not familiar, uh, Madrid is, because he's you know from this neck of the woods. We had uh, Mike Garcia, a Republican, win it was California 25 in 2020. By 333 votes. And there was about 350,000 of us that voted. So that's one tenth of 1%. Not one percent, one tenth of 1%. Less than actually. Uh, the district is, I, I just saw a, um, the LA Times did a, they tried to do an analysis. I think they said it was somewhere between four, if, if it was California 27 as it was redrawn, it would have been uh, Biden plus four, Biden plus five. And I think that, no, 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 2020 would have been Biden plus four, plus five. Uh, And then now they're saying in terms of registered voters, it's like a Democrat plus eight or so. Uh, And the dynamics weren't that much. Well, maybe it's, excuse me, 2020 was Democrat plus eight. I think it's Democrat plus 10 now. The dynamics weren't that much different in 2020. And yet Christy Smith, who is one of the top two, so she'll be running again against Mike Garcia, the Democrat against uh, the Republican. Um, it's also uh, Latino vote is is a significant factor. It's not the majority here, but it's um, it's a significant second to to Caucasian. Also, a huge, uh, a significant percentage of voters are college educated suburban women. So, all that as context, just to give you a little bit of familiarity with California twenty seven. What advice? I, so this is the irony. So Christy Smith, uh, she's a wonderful, accomplished person. She ran, she was uh, our state assembly member here for two two terms. Uh, and I frankly disagreed with a lot of her policies, but she's a good, you know, a good person, an effective legislator. And she included people like me, who's a fiscal conservative, small business guy. But the fact that Mike, Has uh, has gotten an F on the Republican Account, you know his report card from uh, is it called RAP or something? His RAP sheet, Republican Accountability Project. Yeah. He has continued to say, uh, repeat, you know these these uh, unsubstantiated things about the election being stolen, and uh, he's it's just been he voted to overturn Pennsylvania on that night, and then Arizona the next day, January seventh. So I, I don't care if he aligns with my fiscal policy. I don't care. I am pro-democracy. So all that as as, uh, a um, introduction to ask you, what advice do you have for Christy Smith in order to win this district, to flip the district from red to blue?
1: In a midterm election, it's certainly tough. To, to make that flip um, because as we know historically midterm elections are about kicking out the people who are currently in power in the white house. So it would be a Democrat in Joe Biden, but I th- there are two things that Democrats can work I believe to overcome opponents who are Trump extremists. If you see them as a Trump extremist they have to be called out for that. They are, it's not Trump who's the bad guy. It's that elected official who doesn't believe in democracy is the bad person. It's a current bad person. It's a bad person who will bring these things forward. Do you really want that person to have an opinion? I say this about Marjorie Taylor Greene all the time. Do you really want someone who believes in Jewish space lasers to have a seat on the education committee?
0: That's exactly. I mean, it's not even that. I mean, that, that's that's like not. To, but it's someone who literally within a week after a teenager survived a mass shooting where he saw almost two dozen of his friends and his teachers slaughtered. She thought it was perfectly acceptable and, and was justified in, in, in hunting him down on a D.C. street and yeah. harassing him. Like that's the person that we want. That so I think I think that's a good point. That's what that's gotta
1: be local. It's gotta be. This is how this person.
0: Well, we're in Santa. Remember, we're in Santa Clarita, so we had Saugus. Uh, The Saugus shooting is is right here, and my kid goes to Saugus High School. He goes to that school.
1: And I would say that the the thing when it comes to the issue of guns, Democrats have to stop being on defensive with their policies because the Republicans kick it back that, oh, this, if we banned this today it wouldn't have stopped what happened yesterday. That's not, the, that's not the conversation. The conversation is what saves one life tomorrow is wanting to protect your farm from varmin or raccoon with an AR-15 really worth the life of a child. Are you willing to give up that weapon for another one, by the way, Or at least say you can't let someone buy it until they're 21. Isn't that worth the life of a child? I think so. I think we have to they have the messaging has to be there. They have to address the economy in the sense of that they're not ignoring the economy. Because that's first and foremost what we saw in 2021 in Virginia and in in New Jersey and some other big suburban areas is that independence and suburban women right now are really focused on the economy, now more so than even a year ago. Gas prices are not going down. Inflation is, it'll maybe drop a little bit, but it will still be deemed extremely high. It won't be at 8%, but maybe it's at 7%. It's still very high. You have to show if you're a candidate that you care about these things, that you're working on these things, that you believe in a few ideas, and then bring it back local. The one thing that shocks the heck out of me is how infrastructure has never been mentioned by a Democrat since it passed.
0: I don't understand it. That was a, a huge bipartisan accomplishment. Why It's why does also that seem- an
1: accomplishment for your district. Right. Show me a bridge. Every day you should be going to the bridge and saying, this is when it's happening. This is when the ground breaks. This is when we're going to do this. This is how it's going to affect the traffic in the area. Whatever the project is, find a couple, that's what you should be talking about because you have to, to overcome such the, the history and the trend right now. A candidate, People have to wanna vote for that candidate, that person, not that party, that person. If you're the party you're, and you're a Democrat, you're gonna lose. Okay. If you are the individual that people can get behind because they feel like you care about their concerns meaning you don't talk down at them and you don't tell them why they're wrong and why your policy is better than the other person's policy, but you actually have a conversation about, yeah, I was just down the street and I filled up my tank too and I can only fill it up halfway because I have to wait till I get paid to finish filling it up because it's so expensive. But if you could talk with people and let them and become relatable to them and let them come out and vote. They cannot come out to vote for a party. They have to come out to vote for a person. A
0: person. That makes sense. I'm gonna play this for Christy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Probably disagree with me. That's all right.
0: No, no. I think um she's she's been very receptive because she understands that this is in fact a purple district. So in order for her, even, even though you know the numbers indicate that it's Democrat plus whatever, plus six, plus eight, plus ten, whatever it is, she still has to persuade a certain number of people who have been voting for Republicans.
1: I don't care what your plus is. You better fight if you're a Democrat running this year, like fight like all heck, because there is not an uh, the, the plus eight, plus six, plus 12, that evaporates if you're just basing it on Democrat. Yeah, it goes away. Everything becomes in play. And that's what I'm talking about, becoming the individual. Talk about your accomplishments. Become someone people vote for, because it's good. that's what they're gonna have to do, because that's how people are gonna come out and vote for Republicans generally, just because of the, the nature of history, just in opposition. They're gonna come out to vote for change. You have to tell people, if you're a Democrat right now, that you are the change. Just give me some more time. Here's what I've done for you. Here's what I'm going to do for you. And yes, I am speaking with you. And I don't mean it to any individual candidate by any means. So please don't let her take it that way. (laughs) It's not directed that way. Yeah, But it needs to be... It needs to be about the, about the district, the new district. Talk about that you understand that you're not, because when lines are redrawn, there are always swaths of people who are completely unknown to you. Go after them, do something, but do not look like you're carrying the democratic lines. Don't use their talking points. Find your own voice and be that voice for that community.
0: Yeah, no, there, I think, One of her mistakes in 2020, and if she if I was talking to her directly, I I, I would I think she knows that I think this I think that she felt the pressure from the National Party to have certain talking points, to your point, that didn't necessarily resonate in this particular district. Yes, it's California, but Santa Clarita is about as close to Idaho as you get in Southern California. You know, I mean, just but, You know, And
1: there's one other thing, you know, like I said, I did R's and I's for, for Biden. It's OK to speak to a few Republicans who, you know, aren't voting Republican. Yeah. And hear what they have to say, because that's how you get their vote.
0: That, that's how I got to know her. I, I we, intru- we got introduced at the uh the home and garden show in Santa Cruz, it's a big thing. Um,
1: <laughs> As someone but, from New York City can completely relate to yeah. No, just kidding.
0: But um, she I introduced myself, hey, Christy, I voted against you a couple times.
1: <laughs> <You> know, she, <laughs>
0: she was in the assembly at that, uh, she was a state assembly member at that time, and uh, she said, oh, to her credit, she said, oh, why did you vote against me? And I told her, I'm a small business guy, fiscal, and you know, here the state assembly and the state senate are dominated by democrats and i i was under the impression at that time and still am that they think everybody who owns a business is essentially, you know, Mark Zuckerberg. We're all rich <laughs> and rolling in it and we got it easy and you could afford to pay all your people, you know, a $1000 an hour. So i was joking around about it, but that's that was basically my message to her credit. She said, "You know what? I need somebody like you on my small business committee. Come and yeah. talk to us. I want I want to represent everybody" And I can't promise you that what you're gonna want, everything you're gonna want is gonna get going to get into legislation that I'm supporting. But I want to hear your voice and let's see if there are some ideas that we can work into it. And that's exactly what happened. I was really encouraged. And yeah, we disagreed a lot, we still disagreed a lot of the time on particular pieces of legislation but I felt like my voice was at least included. And that's, that's all I can ask
1: for. Well, that's a great politician. I'll tell you right there.
0: (laughs) It was terrific. Okay. And a good
1: elected official, a good elected official, more importantly.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, okay. Um, Gosh, I'm looking at the time and I'm thinking, I don't know if we have time for all the questions that I have. That's, I was gonna ask you more generally, but you've already talked about the primary, some things that you've gleaned from the primary so far. looking ahead uh, to the midterms. But I did want to make sure that we leave time for you to talk about All In Together and Know Your Value and a lot of the advocacy for other women that you've been involved with.
1: That has been especially rewarding. And it started with first working uh, with Mika Brzezinski on some Know Your Value projects. Uh, She was gracious enough to let me write a column and which I haven't written anything recently, but I have a few things in the works. But the first column we submitted to know your value was with a colleague of mine, Democratic strategist, Adrian Elrod. So we offered it from a Democrat and Republican woman, women. So it came from one Democrat, one Republican, both of us women. And we offered our opinions on how to what we've learned in politics for people to use, for women to use in their everyday lives. So it wasn't necessarily that you had to wanna be an elected official to read this column. It may be, how do you deal with conflict at the office? And we would be each give an experience that we dealt with and it was a political experience, but how it became relatable and takeaways from, from that column. Sometimes it was how to get along at Thanksgiving.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> you know, those are, those are tricky times too. And, you know, know your audience, etc. cetera. And for those who do want to run for office, we were like, you know, your Christmas list is your fundraising list. So we, were, we had a lot of fun with it. And it was, it was great to have a Republican and Democrat project. Right. Again, and it was about empowering women and learning from two people who, although came from different parties, had very similar experiences.
0: Yeah. And, and to your point, there was a lot of really good practical advice. You know, there was one point that I, that really caught my attention that you said a lot of women, if they don't check off all the boxes in the entire job description, they often won't apply.
1: Right. Yes. That's a huge one. It's amazing. Men think like they can apply for everything under the sun and that they're ultimately qualified. Women are very methodical and they're like, well, no, I don't want to misrepresent or whatever. Basically don't talk yourself out of a position because you may not have all of those qualities, but you may have something else to offer. Yeah or maybe you have your own business and you'd like to work with that company and you notice that they're looking for a communications person and you approach them and say would you be interested in hiring me as an intern consultant you know, work for what work out of the box because women tend to really stay within a structure unfortunately maybe because there's other things that they have to stay in structures for because they manage so many things, whether it's family and kids and work. I mean, we already learned what women do in the pandemic. They literally do everything. Um, And I'm always amazed with my friends who say, the guy friends who say like, oh, I have to go babysit. I'm like, it's not babysitting if it's your child. (laughs) Does your wife say that?
0: Right. Yeah, so, I never got away with that for what it's worth.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's really important to for women to recognize what they bring to the table and being different or a different opinion not just from other women but from men is a, another insight that is now becoming more valued in the workplace than ever before. We talk about a lot of bring from your experience, from your perspective. And all in together does such an incredible job of outreach to women in who want to improve their communities, whether it's through elective office or nonprofit work. And again, really touching. There now, there it tends to be smaller districts, and you know they're not writing national pieces, although they have national polls which are fantastic and enlightening. And you often see them on Morning Joe. But again women need to learn how to use their voice for maximum impact
0: well excellent i so again i know we're we're almost over time here but i have one more question and then one piece of business my last question is do you have any questions for me
1: ah yes how did you start you've explained how many you know your different roles in business yeah your time in in Hollywood, yeah. <laughs> and I meet you sitting here. We're at each at our own computer. We can't do it in person right now, but I want to know how you ended up finding a the time to do this, <laughs> and b what what you get out of it personally, and how it fulfills you.
0: Thank you. So I not I'm not sure how I find the time to do it, but um, it, it's. I was really influenced by a book that David Brooks wrote a couple of years ago called The Second Mountain. Mm-hmm. And, and I hit the big five Oh last July and just thought there's a lot of things that I'm doing that I do because they pay the bills. And, you know, to be fair, I, I hang out with, uh, I, I collaborate professionally with a bunch of people that I like and respect, but there were things that I felt like I was leaving on the table and I felt unfulfilled and, I've been having conversations just like these avocationally, although not with folks, uh, high profile folks like yourself, but I, I just felt like these types of conversations, there, were cert- there are certain imperatives in in our culture and the types of conversations I was having over a glass of whiskey or, or some wine with a friend about religion and politics, it was it would be important to share that with some other people to have conversations with people that think differently than I do, that we can, we can do this. And even if we don't find common ground, we can still enhance a relationship and learn from each other across our differences. So I've been most surprised by people's willingness to come on. Like I, I'm a nobody. In your world, I am an absolute nobody.
1: In my world, I'm a nobody too, trust me. <laughs> <laughs> Except but- to my mother. My mother thinks I'm a somebody. I will say that.
0: Um, yeah, my mother is thoroughly unimpressed with me. So that's uh, one, one major difference. But, um, but I've been really encouraged that people who are very accomplished, people whose work I like, I don't say that to blow smoke. I, I genuinely respect your work and respect, uh, have admired when I've heard you on shows like Politicology or reading your columns. So what a thrill to be able to bring people in that I know from their work. And now I get to know one on one, so that's been a really uh, wonderful um, chapter here. We've, we've been a part of for the last couple of years. So did I? Did I answer your question?
1: You did. So I have one response to you. Okay. Thank you for your service to the public. Oh, that's nice. Because you bring it forward. That's what. That's what makes our country work. Is bringing people together like you're doing, hearing different opinions. So, your contribution is important and I'm grateful for it. So thank you.
0: Oh, that's nice. That's super nice of you. So before we close, uh, please let people know how we can find more information about you, Susan Del Percio strategies and all the great work that you're doing.
1: Well, mostly the best way to to get information on me is on Twitter. And that's my handle is Del Percio S. That's kind of how you keep up with what I'm doing. That's about it. And then okay. they're finding me on this podcast, and I and I usually promote whatever else I'm doing on my Twitter feed.
0: <laughs> yeah, and be sure to get Politicology, too. You guys have oh, such a great yes. rapport on there. So
1: Ron Seslo does such a great job of bringing such unique people together. And it's not just like, I tend to do the roundup, not tend to, that's kind of the show he has on Thursdays, but he has other shows and other great guests, and it's just, he digs deep. And I love that about Ron. He's so—he's become a very good friend and he's so thoughtful. But I agree with you, the politicology plus segments are where we're like, huh, ah, that was interesting. Now let's talk about this. <laughs> yeah. So it's a little bit of an insight. It's kind of like having, joining us for a drink after the show.
0: Right, right. Oh, that's exactly how it feels. It's terrific. I love it, yeah. So uh, thank you. And I'll be sure to include your your Twitter handle in the show notes. And uh, yeah, it's been this has been really wonderful. It's been it's been a real treat. So I hope it's not the last time.
1: No, absolutely not. I have really enjoyed this. Thank you so much Corey.
0: Sure thing. And as always, if you dig what we're doing here, please hit that subscribe button, leave a review and comments wherever you get podcasts and tell a friend about talk politics and religion not killing each other. Now go talk some politics and religion with gentleness and respect and have a great week. Thank you for joining us today. If you dig what we're doing here, it is super easy to follow us. You can go to our site, politicsandreligion.us. That's with the "and" spelled out, A-N-D, politicsandreligion.us. And we're on all the socials, at tpandrpod. You know, tpandrpod for talking politics and religion pod. And here's a big way you can support us, by becoming one of our patrons. You can even become a producer or executive producer of our program and have a lot more say in who we bring on, the kinds of questions we explore, or just help us keep the lights on. But mostly, we really appreciate you giving us a listen. So for the whole team here at Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other, thanks for hanging out with us. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Chikuno Olam.